Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, we try to make keeping up with literature easy, like having the latest research spoon-fed to you straight through your earbuds. Now then, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering. First off, we have the prevalence of silent myocarditis after COVID infections. After that, using ECMO to save patients with massive PEs. Then, the risk of not getting in the ambulance after an opioid overdose. Then, after that, we have another study showing benefit for TXA in trauma. And finally, what cherry picking are your residents doing? This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the brilliant Cliff Freeman, Nicole McCoin, and Clay Smith. Now then for the first article, which was titled COVID-19 Myocardial Pathology Evaluation in Athletes with Cardiac Magnetic Residence, Complete CMR, out of the Journal of Circulation. By now, we know that COVID can cause myocarditis, which of course can lead to the full spectrum of disease in these patients, from fulminant cardiac failure to possibly even just asymptomatic. In COVID patients who've been mildly sick, could they be harboring this silent myocarditis? Is it safe for them to continue their day-to-day -day stuff? What about if they're athletes, if these are people that are really stressing their hearts? Could these patients unknowingly have myocarditis with no dyspnea, normal ECGs, normal troponins, and a normal echocardiogram? Let's find out. This study looked at the cardiac MRI findings of 59 collegiate athletes, all of whom had had prior mild or asymptomatic COVID-19 infections, and then compared them with 60 control athletes that their imaging was done before COVID-19 even existed, and then also 27 healthy volunteers. These scans were done a median of three weeks out from symptom onset in the COVID patients. What they found was that there was two COVID athletes, or 3% of the group, which had evidence of myocarditis. Both had normal ECGs, normal troponins, and normal echoes. One went on to develop dyspnea, and one had pericarditis only detectable by cardiac MRI. So the prevalence of myocarditis among mildly symptomatic patients appears to be low, but it is present. The clinical relevance of this, given that it doesn't come up on any of our common tests, I don't know about that. In a spoonful, the prevalence of silent COVID-19 myocarditis in collegiate athletes after a mild or asymptomatic infection, as detected by cardiac MRI, was 3%. And that's it for that. Let's move on to the second article, which was titled Venoarterial Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation in Massive Pulmonary Embolism-Related Cardiac Arrest, a systematic review out of the Journal of Critical Care Medicine. A little while ago, we did a deep dive on the current management and controversies related to PEs. That was an excellent post put together by our author, Bo Stubblefield, and I recommend it. Now, one of the things that we mentioned almost offhandedly in that post was the possibility of treating massive PEs with venoarterial, or VA, ECMO. And now we have a little bit more to say about that and its possible benefits. This was a systematic review of 77 trials, put together to encompass 301 patients with pulmonary embolism who were arrested and were placed on VA ECMO. Of these, a full 61% survived to discharge. Factors related to worse survival were an age above 65, and those cannulated during cardiac arrest. Now, 61% survival is actually pretty amazing, of course, but what we really want to know about is neurologically intact survival. Unfortunately, only one-fifth of the cohort had this endpoint recorded, but from that subset of the cohort, 88% of them had good neurological outcomes. Take that with a grain of salt, though. 
Another interesting point from this study was that receiving thrombolysis prior to ECMO cannulation did not significantly impact survival, but it did have an increased chance of major bleeding. These patients seem to survive in this cohort, though. So overall, the kind of take-home here is really going to be that you should think of VA ECMO in massive PE patients who aren't headed in the right direction. Try to think of it early, ideally before they arrest. And thrombolysis doesn't seem to be a contraindication, so you don't have to fret too much about that decision. In a spoonful, in patients with massive PEs and cardiac arrest who were put on VA ECMO, the survival to discharge rate was 61%. And that brings us to the third article, which was titled, Non-transport after pre-hospital naloxone administration is associated with higher risk of subsequent non-fatal overdose out of the Journal of Pre-Hospital Emergency Care. All right, in the last few years, we've actually come a long way in terms of opioid addiction, mostly in the form of naloxone take-home programs and medication-assisted treatments. This study was done before these options really reached routine use, but it's still useful data. We already know that requiring naloxone administration is associated with an increased mortality over the following year, but what can we do about it? This was a retrospective review analyzing 1,600 encounters with an EMS system, where patient contact was made due to concern for opioid overdose or naloxone administration. Many of these encounters were repeat encounters, 300 of the total 1,600. And from these encounters, 59% were transported by EMS after the initial visit. Declining transport was associated with repeat encounters requiring naloxone again with a hazard ratio of 1.66. So now that we have these better treatment options that I mentioned, should we be pressing harder for our EMS colleagues to bring more overdose patients into the hospital? Or would those same patients who refuse transport also refuse treatment? It's hard to say. In a spoonful, in patients who refuse EMS transport after opiate overdose, they had an increased risk of requiring repeat EMS administration of naloxone. Now then, the fourth article, the impact of pre-hospital TXA on mortality among bleeding trauma patients, a systematic review and meta-analysis out of the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Since the discovery of trauma, and I'm thinking back to like Cain and Abel days here, we've been trying to reduce the mortality of trauma. Crash 2 is what made everyone think that TXA was holy water. Crash 3 went on to suggest there was an improvement of mortality for TBI patients with a GCS over 9, particularly if given early. There has since been a little bit of evidence that refutes that, but that's not what we're talking about today. This trial gave TXA in the ambulance, and you can't really get much earlier than that, well, unless we could start convincing patients to take TXA before risky behavior, but that's unlikely. So this was a systematic review and meta-analysis of four studies, one RCT and four observational studies, in which TXA was given pre-hospital for significant traumatic hemorrhage. Three of the studies recorded mortality at 24 hours, about 1,000 patients in each group, and here there was a 40% reduction in the odds of death in the first 24 hours associated with TXA use. Three studies also recorded mortality at 28 to 30 days. Again, about 1,000 patients in each group, TXA or no TXA. Here, there was no significant difference, but the p-value was 0.06. The TXA group had 85 deaths and the no TXA group had 117 deaths. I hesitate to keep my eye out for inclusion of more studies in the future because it seems like there's a good chance of there being a difference here, but waiting around for more positive results isn't really good science. So we'll see about that, but more RCTs would be nice. All four studies reported the incidence of venous thromboembolism and there was no increase in clotting due to TXA. In a spoonful, when given by pre-hospital providers for suspected significant hemorrhage, TXA was able to reduce the 24-hour mortality rate by 40%. 
The mortality rate one month out was not significantly changed, but it'll be something to look in on in the future. And that brings us to the last article, titled The Association of Resident Characteristics with Patterns of Patient Self-Assignment, out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. All the residents and students that rotate through the emergency department, as many will, are often spoiled by getting the chance to pick which patients they would like to see. Now, if we knew that this led to preferential patient assignment, which could alter patient care, patient experience, and even resident education, then maybe we'd have to consider a different way of assigning patients. This study looked at a limited scope of chief complaints, resident characteristics, and patient self-assignment decisions. The chief complaints that were looked into were vaginal bleeding, breast-related concerns, male genitourinary concerns, gastrointestinal bleeding, epistaxis, and lacerations. The authors looked at nine years of data from one tertiary academic medical center and determined the likelihood of patients with each of the six complaints we mentioned, receiving care from a male or female resident as well as the resident's training specialty. Male residents were significantly less likely than female residents to treat patients with breast-related complaints, 33% less likely. Male residents were also less likely to see vaginal bleeding complaints, 27% less likely. By way of specialties, surgical residents were more than twice as likely to see patients with lacerations, and obstetrics and gynecology residents were five times less likely to see patients with male genitourinary concerns. Now, this is just a sample of what's going on. Only six chief complaints were studied, and the authors did not account for the possibility of gender non-binary patients or residents. Perhaps we should be switching to a rotational patient assignment system, or maybe even purposely assigning unfamiliar patients. It really comes down to whether or not this is actually a problem. Doesn't it kind of make sense that they would see familiar complaints? A plastic surgeon being assigned to a vaginal bleeding case isn't likely to necessarily be beneficial to the education useful for that person's future career. Either way, it's something to think about on kind of a shift-by-shift basis. So, in a spoonful, when residents are allowed to self-assign their patients, they tend to pick complaints which are more familiar to them. Now then, that's it. That's all. Let's do a quick rapid review of everything we covered. First off, silent COVID-19 myocarditis was found in 3% of athletes after mild infections, but we had to look really hard to find it. Second, massive PE patients who arrest are good VA ECMO candidates. Try to get to them before they arrest, though. Overall, the survival was 61%. Third, refusing transport by EMS after overdose and naloxone administration put patients at higher risk of requiring the same again. Fourth, pre-hospital TXA reduced 24-hour mortality due to hemorrhage by 40%. And finally, from the fifth article, residents favor complaints that they are familiar with when picking patients in the emergency department. Males pick less vaginal bleeding and breast complaints. Obstetrics and gynecology sees less male genitourinary complaints. And surgeons see a lot more lacerations. Now then, you've already earned them, and we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details and pricing for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. The links to all the articles summarized can be found at the same place. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.